like probably close to a million dollars in debt. Uh, hopefully not as much student debt as some of you are racking up, but our, <laughs> more, I guess. Um, and, and he's in so much debt that like the chances of, of getting out of it just seems profound. Like Dave Ramsey can't help at all. <laughs> wow, that's bad. Um, that's bad. That's bad. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> and, and so uh, he's living his life. Uh, he's racked up all this debt. He's living his life to where it's just like treading water. And he's <clears throat> paying off his debtors just enough, right, to where like he's paying what he has to, just the interest, but he, it, the principle staying the same. And so he's trying to get himself out from underneath this debt, but it is impossible. It's just too great. And as he's doing this day after day, years pass, years pass, and, and now he's an older man, and he still has this great debt. And one day, out of nowhere, uh, he opens up his banking app, and he looks at his debt, and it's completely wiped out. Amazing. <laughs> like, what? That's crazy. And he finds out that he has this wealthy great aunt who has literally just wiped out his debt completely for him. Now, here's where the story gets really crazy because some people um, who were around him not long after started to notice something. He was, he was kind of upset and angry. You would think, like, the, the person who was rescued from this kind of debt would be, like, so grateful and happy and, and like, have this new lease on life but instead he's angry and he starts wanting to go back to what the way life used to be I mean because it was so easy right like you know he, every month he got his paycheck and every month his money went here and here and here to these creditors this creditor this creditor this creditor that was life he's like I like that life now as I tell that story what would you be saying to that man crazy? Like, what? Who, who would ever think that way? Okay, now, we're in Exodus. Let's consider this story as well. If you know the story of Exodus, you know that God's people have been enslaved for hundreds of years, um, and they have been crying out to God to bring them out of slavery. And after hundreds of years, God answers their pleas, and he rescues them in the most amazing way. Because if you know the story, God works through ten miraculous acts of power. And he one by one dismantles the gods of Egypt through these acts of power. Until finally, the people are not just released from their slavery. The people are so ready, the Egyptian people are so ready to get the Israelite people out of there that they're like, here, take our stuff too. And, and they are plundered, and there's the Israelites, these people have been enslaved for hundreds of years, walking out of Egypt, and they've literally, there's been no uprising, they've had to fight no war, they've done nothing, and they're walking out with all the stuff of Egypt in their hands, out the door. But this is where it gets crazy. When you get to Exodus 14, they've seen God work in these amazing ways. Pharaoh wakes up and he's kind of like, hmm, I just lost all of my workers. How, like, is our economy going to survive? And he says, all right, army, let's go. We're going to go get these guys and bring them back. 
verse 11 of Exodus 14. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Guys, they were enslaved. And two minutes later, two minutes into their freedom, they're like, man, I like that life better. It's crazy. Now here's where it gets even more insane. The story that I tried to tell you, the parable I began with, in this story of Exodus, is our story. Because we are so quick to be freed from sins in our life to go back to them. Mm. You hear what I'm saying? Mm. The very things that God frees us from and delivers us from when we are saved through the blood of Jesus, it's like, hmm, I kind of like that. Let me go back over there again. And we look at like the first story and the story of, of Exodus, and we'd be like, they're crazy. We need to look at our lives sometimes and go, maybe we're crazy. <laughs> maybe we need to evaluate our lives and see where we stack up to here. And what we're going to get to, I'm going to really hand it off to these guys, and they're about to take off here in, in 1 Corinthians 6, is you're going to see that this, uh, the ideas presented in 1 Corinthians 6 have a lot to do with freedom and how we interact with freedom, right? Just like the Egyptians, what they did when they were free were time and time again they would say, I liked our old life better. Maybe we should go back to that. And we can do the same. And here's one last quote. Freedom is freedom from something. But for it to be meaningful, it must be freedom for something. Did you catch that? Freedom is freedom from something. But for it to be meaningful, it must be freedom for something. That's good. And, you know, I think just to segue from Exodus into 1 Corinthians, I, I just it's helpful to realize God is so gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger, all the things that he is. If you look throughout the history of Israel, they, they do this a lot. It wasn't that one. You could have given, yeah. I think, 14 examples in those chapters of them yeah. complaining about him feeding them with, like, cereal from heaven, <laughs> you know, meat falling from the sky. Literally food falling Literally from the food sky, from the sky every morning. Water from the rocks. Like, they, were, they would just whine about it. Um, and, but throughout their history, when they would do things like this, God would continually remind them I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He would remind them of who he was and what he had done. And, and here um, we see actually Paul doing a very similar thing, which he does elsewhere as well. So let's just, we're, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. But I wanted to back up just, to, again, just to segue into to see this picture. We need to be reminded um, of what we came from, too. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Paul does this, right? In verse 11, where we were in last week, uh, verses 9 and 10, he walks through a, a whole bunch of things you don't want to do or be, um, just uh, all sorts of sins and vile lifestyles. And he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, 
So just the reminder, like you were that too. So don't, you know, be all upset about people who are doing these things. That was you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And out of that, out of that, remember where you were, remember what was done for you, we dive into um, really the, the bulk of what we're going to talk about tonight, starting in verse 12. Go ahead and read it. Okay, then I will. Verse 12. So we are in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 12 says, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Um, he uses this phrase, all things are lawful for me, in, in quotes uh, three times. A couple times here in chapter 6, elsewhere as well. He puts it in quotes, you know, there's a couple of opinions maybe about why that happens there. Because, uh, I mean, it's in quotations, not just as he's saying it, but he's like kind of giving this idea of like, oh, that's a phrase. Um, it, it may be something he's said before that they've heard him say. It also points to a very common belief in Corinth that many of the new Corinthian Christians had adopted, which essentially was that, that <laughs> I can do whatever I want. Right. Um, my, my body is permitted to have everything it craves. This was sort of just a common belief in Corinthian culture. Um, if I want it, then it must be right. If it feels good or sounds good, then I should be allowed to have it. And, and that comes out of the, uh, uh, the idea that Plato pushed forward that you're the, the body is matter, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and that uh, it's going to decay and rot, and mm-hmm. really the only thing that matters is your soul, yeah. and so it doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so this idea of when, when Paul comes along, who is the apostle of freedom, yeah. right? If you read anything of, of Paul's, he's kind of big on the idea of freedom, yeah. right? Yeah. You've been set free. We're no longer slaves. And, and so he's pushing back, uh, and, and Chris is right, there's probably a good chance that these young Christians, this young church, is m- abusing Paul's teaching on freedom, or it could it could have been a weird combination of the um, of that uh, Greek philosophy of of the body doesn't matter, so do whatever you want to. Yeah, and before we judge them too harshly, I mean, we have to realize that <laughs> our culture, and it's sometimes our Christian culture too, is not too far removed from that of Corinth, right? I mean, think about some of the arguments that are made. Uh, to explain away or to make okay different things, choices, lifestyles, whatever. Like, I was born this way, or this is how I feel, so how dare you tell me I'm wrong for doing this. Um, and, and we have to make a choice here of who we will listen to, right? Are we going to listen to God and to what Scripture says about a thing, or are we going to listen to man? Mm-hmm. Because the, the pernicious and pervasive lie of our culture is that freedom, like true freedom, means not having any authority over us, right? Mm -hmm. Not having anyone telling us what we can or cannot do, like a moral anarchy. That's what the lie of our culture is. We'll touch on this again throughout the night, um, but I would like you to begin now searching your heart and mind as we talk about this idea and like just ask yourself, like, have have you drunk that Kool-Aid? I mean, our our culture swims in that Kool-Aid, so it's hard not to uh, drink some unawares right? But, but beware, because that lie is from the pit of hell, and it actually started as the seductive whisper of a serpent in a garden, okay? It's the exact same. Like, Satan really is not that creative. He has the same lie mm-hmm. over yeah. and over and over again, but mm-hmm. it keeps working. Did God really say? Does God really love you? Does he want you to be happy? If so, then why would he withhold something from you? You should be your own God. You should make your own choice, and then 
you will truly see. Then you will truly be free, right? I, I think, again, um, when Paul says all things are lawful for me, what, this is an idea that's going to run through a lot of the rest of Corinthians. This idea that we are, in, we are free in Christ when you get to mm-hmm. the, uh, chapter 8, uh, mm-hmm. food offered to idols, chapter 10, yeah. this idea of your freedom, don't use it to, uh, 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 for your personal benefit, but to benefit others. In fact, that phrase, um, all things are lawful for me, he repeats it two times. Um, he repeats it in chapter 10, and in chapter 10 he has this caveat. Um, so it's, the first thing is, um, all things are lawful, but not helpful. Mm-hmm. And here he says, all things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Galatians 5, Paul has this entire chapter in Galatians 5 where he unpacks this idea that um, it's possible for a person to uh, use freedom in such a way that they become enslaved to the thing they're exercising their freedom with. Right, And so that's what Paul's getting at. Here and and he's he's using their own stuff against them, which is brilliant. By the way, if if you're uh, if you've taken more than one logic class, you know this is a brilliant way to win an argument, right? And so he uses their own arguments. This uh, in verse thirteen, food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Um, he's that's a phrase that they were using. That's that philosophy of, well, the body doesn't matter, so I can eat what I want, right? That's a great diet to be on, by the way. Yeah. Um, donuts <laughs> every day, all day. Um, but, you know, sorry. Go, no, go, 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 just, go. I was about to go on a donut rant. Uh, so. Yeah, I'll stop. <laughs> stop uh, for everyone's sake. Uh, just talking about his, his argument and the logic here, he keeps going and says, it's still in verse 13, after this food is meant for the stomach bit, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Now, if you're listening to that, you might expect him to say, in the flow of an argument, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but sexual morality, right? Mm-hmm. It, it would seem like there could be this, like, don't do it wrong, do it right. But yeah. instead, he goes a completely different direction and says, it's not meant for sexual immorality, but it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And that's his argument because we are not primarily sexual creatures, despite, again, what our culture streams our identity who we are is not based in our sexuality our bodies are not ultimately just temporal physical again this plato idea of, of just matter no they're not this goes so much deeper than sexuality because here we're actually talking about purpose of life paul is saying here our physical bodies our bodies are made not for sexual immorality but for a purpose for the lord and later he talks about more of what that looks like but i mean seriously listen like if if plato's right and if we are just simply biological creatures going through this short life, trying to get the most out of it that we can, then yes, actually the goal is sex. I mean, like, if this is all there is, then eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Sex right? and money is it. Pursue temporary pleasure. Reproduce if, your if genetic code. Right. I mean, seriously, like, if, if this is all there is, then that makes perfect sense. But you have to remember, we live as exiles in a foreign land. And this foreign land denies the very existence of a God who made us in a certain way for a certain purpose. So, of course, the world outside has this view of our bodies and sex that, and that that's our purpose. And if there is no God, then yeah, hedonism makes perfect sense. Pursue your yeah. own pleasure. Pursue what makes you happy and, and, and go for it. But there is a God. <laughs> there is a God who has spoken and he's not, listen, hear this, he's not sitting in heaven trying to keep you from having fun. 
Like, don't believe that. That's another distortion of, of this idea. Our God desires our ultimate joy and ultimate pleasure. He is way more committed to your joy and your pleasure than you are. And he knows how we can have true joy and true pleasure, true fulfillment. We just actually have to trust what he says. Yeah, if you believe he's the creator yeah. of us, then you have to believe he knows what will fulfill us. He, he, you have to believe that, you, that he knows what will uh, bring us that joy and, and everything that we need. Um, because that's, that's the um, principle that we've been so indoctrinated by uh, in my life. Like, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around uh, what he's saying here because all my life I've been told that, like, Freedom means an absence of rules, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And that's just not the case. What, like you said earlier, Paul is the apostle who speaks about freedom in, in a way that like is, is it's incredible because he's, he's over and over like telling us what we have in Christ is this incredible freedom. But what that incredible freedom actually entails is what he says right here, that we are meant for the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's what freedom is. When our life... Because here's what Paul said. As he talked about freedom, at the same time, he also described himself as a what to the Lord? What did he describe himself as? As a slave. So he's saying, I'm completely free, but at the same time, I'm a slave. That's the Christian life. Like, both of those things together. That I have this incredible freedom, but at the same time, I'm a slave to Jesus. And so the, the way that we understand that is that we are so completely tied into the Lord. He's going to say that here, that, that we are members of Christ. We're joined to the Lord, verse 17. So we are so wrapped up in his life that, that that's, that's our freedom and our slavery at the same time. And, and it's so good because, again, what I said earlier, he's, he's our creator. So he knows how we work and what makes us tick and what we need. Yeah, I mean, really, just real quick, like true freedom is knowing why you were made and mm. living the way you were made. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. Like, yeah. we, when, when, that, when you, that actually clicks and you believe it and you live that way, like, that is the most free, like, that's the most freeing thing that you can ever experience to realize I was made for something and then to live that way. Any other way of life, you're, you're living against the way you were made to live. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea that, um, that we have been created, there is a creator, that we, we believe that, right? Um, and Paul, uh, because he's dealing with sexual immorality, mm-hmm. right? That's the, that's the big overarching problem right here. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, you know, the guy and his mom... Yeah, we don't really want to weird, revi- do we, we yeah. don't want to revisit that, no. do we? Like, like there is some sexual sin going on in Corinth, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. Paul, it's interesting to me, and I want you to hear and see this. Paul, Jesus, all the writers of the New Testament, when they when they when they go to a biblical sexual ethic, the one place they all go is guess where? Mm-hmm. Genesis, and Paul does it right here. So he he talks about this this deep doctrinal truth of union with Christ, and it's this mysterious uh, how we are united with Christ uh, is, a, is a deep, we, we don't have the kind of time we need right now to go into that. And Paul is saying, we can't uh, join with a the prostitute. There were actually 
temple prostitutes in Corinth that Christians were going to because, hey, it's my body. My body, my, I get to do what I want to with it. And Paul is going, no, you don't. And look what, he, look what he does at the end of verse 16. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Well, guess where that's found? In Genesis, before the fall. So when we talk about a biblical sexual ethic, we are going to use the same argument that both Jesus and Paul and the other writers of the Bible use. The ideal, which is set forth in Genesis, where God makes for Adam one woman, Eve, and God gives away the first bride in the garden, and he says, that is very good. One man, one woman, inside that covenant relationship, that is the ideal for sexual morality. Anything outside of that is what Paul calls pornea. That's this junk drawer word that any kind of sexual sin fits in. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, the, that's the basis for where we get a biblical sexual ethic because it's where Jesus and Paul go to Every time the topic comes up, they go back to Genesis pre-fall. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have a tendency, well, at least I know I can do this sometimes. I'm sure none of you wrestle with this problem. But to kind of compare ourselves to, like, somebody else who's worse and make us feel better. And so mm-hmm. don't, don't find yourself doing that here because it's easy to read Corinthians and be like, well, I'm not sleeping with my mom. <laughs> and I have not yet purchased a Please prostitute. Please put that on Twitter. <laughs> Right, and so I haven't done those things. I haven't gone so to see the temple prostitute. Haven't been to see that. the temple yeah. prostitute, so I guess I'm doing okay. But lest we forget, <laughs> Jesus, okay, in his most mountainous and famous of sermons, he didn't just kind of mountainous. reference this idea of adultery. No, he raised the bar on what adultery was and said it's not just the act; it's if you look at a woman lustfully, then you have committed adultery with her already. So your eyes are also members of your body that you can join with a prostitute, okay? So don't just think, oh, I haven't done the act, I haven't done the thing. Like, according to Jesus, looking, whether it's on Millage Avenue or online or wherever it is, if you look with lust at a woman or a man, this isn't just a guy problem, we know this, okay? Like, hear this. This is, this is serious, guys. Like, I, I don't want this to be a, a, a whole, whatever, 45 minutes of, like, don't do this kind of message but at the same time mm-hmm. there needs to be some of that yeah um because I, I care about you guys i was just thinking i've got five kids okay yes four are outside the womb one is inside the womb I, i'm pro-life so i have five kids yeah you do um and you can tweet that uh and yes, that you can my two there. oldest are boys okay and about three years ago i started a, a conversation that i hope will be an ongoing <laughs> it will be an ongoing conversation until they're married or until they die, whatever, uh, about life and sex and manhood and what that means, what that looks like. And I'm, I'm not going to go into those. There are some fun conversations, great questions out of those. But there's a reason I'm doing that. And it's not because I'm trying to like shelter them and hide them from the world outside and make sure they never see um, what's out there. No, but I know that this is a war. It's a battle that they're going to fight. And they're either going to be told by their idiot friends or by the doctor what sex is and what they should do. Or they're going to be told by me and by the word of God. And I'm taking that option. And I'm old enough now that I kind of look at you guys as like my kids. Sorry, I just, I do. And that's weird. But I feel that way about you. I care about you. And so I want you to hear what God has to say about this. This is serious. Okay, this, this, I mean, it's life and death stuff. Like, 
this is just, sorry, this, I'm just real quick. This is a habit that um, I, just, I do, and you should do it too. Just read a proverb a day because it'll just help you when it comes to wisdom. And if you do that, about the first 10, so the first 10 days of every month, you're just going to be reminded over and over and over and over again to watch out for sexual temptation. But specifically in Proverbs 7, when, he ta- when Solomon talks about it, he says to, to, to listen to the voice of the seductive woman, uh, and it can be a seductive man, don't worry about that, just to listen to that voice and to follow is like an ox going to the slaughter. It's like a, a deer caught in a snare. Like, see this for what it is. This is a trap. This is a snare. And, it, and the way he writes it is he doesn't know that it leads to death. Like, this, this is serious stuff here, which is why Paul addresses it, right? And why he, Paul's answer to that is in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so here's, here's what that means in the Greek. Run! <laughs> yeah. Right? You know, like, we're, like especially dudes. Like, hey, dudes, wake up, look at me. All the guys in the room. We're told, hey, we don't run from a fight, right? Like, we go toward the fight. Listen to me. You need to be like Scooby-Doo and Shaggy when it comes to sexual sin. You know what I'm talking about? Like, every time a ghost shows up, what do they do? They run! Like, that's literally what Paul is saying. Flee from this because it will kill you. Mm -hmm. And make no mistake, all of us are sexual sinners. Every one of us. Mm -hmm. The three of us, everybody in this room, simply because we're human. And our first parents messed everything up for us in the garden. Right? We run around naked eating fruit. It was awesome. And then all of a sudden we're sewing fig leaves together trying to cover ourselves up. And that's, that's what we've been doing since then. And, and doing what the Israelites are doing, going, can we just go back to Egypt? Mm-hmm. Because, man, slavery was so much better. Mm-hmm. And, and so when Paul is saying, flee from sexual sin, what he's saying to us is, don't run back into the cell. You've been set free. You've been, you've been set free from something, like Joel said, for something. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is, I don't want this to feel like a, like we're just saying, stop sinning, you sinners. You should. Yeah, I mean. Right? Yeah. Like you should stop that. <laughs> and right? But, but because there's something better. Not because you're bad. Yes. There's just something better. There's a couple of big principles here that we, we don't want you to miss. And, and one of those is that. Uh, the, what Vic was referring to earlier in Genesis, in case you didn't, in case you didn't catch that, the, the phrase that's pulled from Genesis is, uh, for it is written, this is verse 16, the two will become one flesh. Uh, that idea of two people uniting to become one is, is so powerful. And, and that's just one of these overarching principles that's going to carry into chapter 7. We were supposed to cover all of chapter 7. And uh, yeah, we're not going yeah, to. Yeah, not going to happen. We're not going to make it. Uh, but... <laughs> You can read it. That it's idea, clear, right? it's, it's, it's quoted in, or the word is used in 16 and 17, the word joined, that, that also refers to that same idea. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him? The word joined means glued. Mm. So when we um, have sex, it glues us together. 
that's what God meant for in the marriage relationship. In fact, in the first part of chapter 7, when, when Paul says, listen, if you're married, you need to be having sex. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's what glues your marriage together. It's important for that. Uh, but at the same time, if that's the true principle, then think about how that works outside of marriage. Think about when, and that's what he's saying there, if you go and have sex with someone who's, who you're not married to, you're becoming glued to them. You're joining yourself to them. When in reality, uh, God is the one you're to be joined to, and the person you're married to is the one you're to be joined to. The, keep going. I, I was just going to say, the, the other principle that uh, I think we can't miss is the importance of the body. I, I'm going to make sure we talk about yes, that yeah, too. Yes, yeah. I, I want to I come back before we're done to some real just like practical, when we say flee, like what are some <coughs> ways to yeah. do that? Because I think that would be just, it's just helpful. So let's do that at some point. But I, I feel it's important to, to just sidebar for one second and kind of put sex in its proper place, because we're talking about it a lot tonight. And, and again, it's a beautiful gift from God for a husband and a wife, one man, one woman in marriage. We've established that um, it has been corrupted, but it's not the enemy either, right? It's not the enemy. It's a beautiful gift, but it's also not the goal. It, it's good, but it's not ultimate. It's a gift, but it's not the goal. Some of you mm-hmm. might be single to heaven, like you might be single your entire life until you meet Jesus. And according to Paul, that's actually a win, Right? Sex is not the goal. Marriage is not the goal. You are not like your marital status, okay? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think in our Christian culture, yeah. we, we tend, and I'm just apologizing for the leadership of churches in general, we tend to look at singleness like brokenness or incompleteness. Preach. Right? Uh, like, oh, don't worry, one day maybe you'll get married, okay? <laughs> That's not the testimony of Scripture, so don't buy that lie, even if we are uh, unintentionally promoting it. Marriage will not solve your sin problem either, it and it cannot... It. It, and it cannot fulfill you. So just hear me and hear, Paul, that marriage is a glorious thing. Sex is a glorious thing, but they are both temporary gifts. And if we only look at the gifts, we'll either be frustrated and disappointed if God does not give them to us, or we'll be disillusioned when they don't satisfy us the way we desire. And we will put our impossible and unbearable weight on our spouse if we're looking to them to satisfy us or looking to sex to fulfill us. So married or single, you can only be fulfilled and satisfied and have true joy and find true identity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the point, again, of freedom. Freedom is not getting married. Okay, I just want to, I want to yeah. lay that yes. out here. Yeah. So that you hear it from the stage at least once. So, I mean, if you, you need to go read chapter 7. Like I said, we're not going to be able to, yeah. to get through the whole thing. Or not at all, maybe. Um, <laughs> we should probably read one verse from it just so we can say yeah, it. We did. We, we did, right? Uh, but that's uh, the, the biggest argument he's making in chapter 7 is this idea of, like, if you uh, find that it's better, or if you find that you can go unmarried, that's better. Like to to and I never heard that at all. Like growing up in church, oh, yeah. I never mm-hmm. heard anyone take First Corinthians seven and say, "Look at this. It's possible that." And what he says, he makes the argument this way that that when you get married, you've got a lot of other things to worry about. All all three of us up here, we we all have uh, uh, some stuff to some worry stuff. about. We Lots of stuff. stuff to worry about <laughs> between being married and having four or five kids uh, each. And and so he's saying, look, like to to have that freedom. Is, is like God can use that and wants to use that. Yeah. The um, the the idea of your bo- of being the autonomous owner of your body. Yeah. Mm. We 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 really have to talk about that. Yeah. Because that's where our culture lands, 
and says, you, you, you get to do what you want to do. And, and it's, Paul ends chapter 6 with the counter to that, right? So uh, he uses this phrase, do you not know? Three or four times he yeah. uses That's Paul's way of going, uh, buckle up, buttercup. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you not know? Six times in chapter 6. Six times. Mm-hmm. Do you not know that your body, this body, is a temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in? Now, we, there, there are some times where I think as Christians, we are so bored with the doctrine yeah. and the Bible that yeah. we don't go, wait, what? Mm-hmm. This is one of those moments. Your body, this carcass that, you, that runs on donuts and cheeseburgers, <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit dwells in it. Just like it, it, God used to go into the temple in Israel. We should be going, what? That's, that's why the body matters. Your, your body is not yours. Paul pushes into this even further. You are not your own. You should underline that. If you underline things in your Bible, you just should underline that. Mm-hmm. You are not your own. Mm-hmm. Let, let me say it again. You are not your own. I'm going to say it one more time. Because this week, in your classes and in the culture you're swimming in, you will hear the opposite of that probably 10,000 times. So I'm going to say one more time. Christian, you are not your own. Here's why. For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. it's, It's the terminology of of slavery. It was what would happen when when someone was bought, purchased out of slavery and set free. That's what Paul is saying here. You don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea that you are the autonomous ruler of your body and you get to make decisions about... Uh, and Paul deals with this. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, who you're going to sleep with. It's, Paul says, you don't, you don't get to just make those decisions with no moral consequence because you are not your own a few years ago i was in rome italy and i one of my definitely favorite parts of that trip was um walking to the pantheon uh and if you've had a chance to be in rome or go to the pantheon it's like this i mean it's an amazing place to walk into it's two thousand years old and it's still today the I think it's the largest unsupported concrete dome like in existence, and it stood for two thousand years. I don't know if I said that exactly right, but it, it, it's this large structure that I mean, it's it's an architectural marvel that this was created two thousand years ago. You walk into this temple and you're in awe of the structure you're in, and when uh, Paul says, "Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit?" My, my first thought was to go there, to think about a temple like that, to walk in that temple and to be in awe of, of like that kind of structure of a place that would be so um, awe-inspiring that you can really worship. 
But then when he ties it in to say this, that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, that's where everything changes. Mm. That it's not just the pantheon where like people go and are awe-inspired, but this is, we are the living, breathing structure of God living in us. And so how we live this life in our body, our physical body matters. Like that, that change, I mean, right? Everyone should be, all the onlookers should be saying, look, that, that looks different in them because the spirit of God dwells in them. People should pick up on that. And, and I mean, I was like, just as convicting to me as I say that as, yeah. as anything. So, so when we wake up tomorrow morning, the Holy Spirit is within us. Live that kind of life. Live the, that kind of life where, on one hand, you know, he says it in the negative way, flee from sexual immorality, but in the positive way, glorify God in your body. Yeah. Can I keep going with that just a little bit? Yeah. Because, I mean, again, the temple is kind of a big deal in, like, the meta-narrative of Scripture, okay? Yeah. It's like a huge deal. It flows throughout the entire story, and it always represents where heaven and earth meet right. and where we see displayed God's desire to dwell with his people, right? So we have the first temple in the garden where it's perfect, again, where God is just walking around in the presence of his people. Sin interrupts that. And so then fast forward to when we have a mobile temple. They call it the tabernacle. It was the temple they could like pack up like a yurt and carry around with them, right? But it was a place <laughs> that the Spirit of God would come and dwell in to meet with his people. And then eventually they had a physical, actual, non-moving, uh, non-mobile home temple in Jerusalem. But same picture, the Spirit of God would come and rest there and he would meet with his people. And, and missiologically, like big picture here, because God has always been a God of the nations. God has always been a God who wants his name and his fame among all peoples and all nations. We have this picture of come and see. Come from afar. We would see people like the Queen of Sheba and others we know coming from all different places. They had a court of the Gentiles, a court for people to come and stand and just in, be in awe of the fact that there was a God so near to his people. That there was a God whose presence dwelt with his people. That was the temple. It drew people from all over the world to wonder at the glory of this great God. And then comes Jesus who John refers to as the word that dwelt among us, but that word dwelt is actually the word tabernacled, okay? So Jesus, the temple in the flesh, and he mentions that later himself, saying, yeah, not down this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. Like He is the temple, right? God wanting to dwell with his people. He comes, he dies, he rises. We have Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, and in the whole big picture of God's redemption of mankind there's a shift from people come and see the temple to now we are the temple and we go and tell the glory of God right so this has a missiological aspect to it what you do with your physical bodies matters that's again why Paul says your body has a purpose it's not meant for sexual immorality it's meant for the Lord glorify God in your body what you do with your body sexually and everything else matters because you're a temple that wherever you go is meant to reflect the glory and greatness of the one true God and if you're doing other things, right, you're, you're putting a veil over that. You're dimming that. You're breaking that image. So, yeah, glorify God yeah. in your body. Yeah. So, we, uh, Chris had mentioned that to talk, we want to talk about some practical, what does it mean to flee? Mm. We, look, we're not naive enough to think that in this room, uh, 
again, I, I'll say this. We're, we're all sexual sinners. It, it, is, it is a, it's a plague uh, in our culture. And, and one of the things, we, we, don't, we don't want you walking out of here tonight thinking, uh, I, I'm, I'm dirty, I can't, but you don't know what I've done. You, you may be in some kind of bondage to some kind of sexual sin. And, and what Paul is saying here when he says flee from sexual immorality, that, that is the negative part of it, as Joel said. But, but, he, but he does end chapter 6 with glorify God in your body. So how do you do that? Some of it is, if you go back to the Old Testament again, Joseph, when he's approached by Potiphar's wife, he literally runs. Literally. Boy like, leaves his shirt and just li- runs. Yeah, just left his coat and everything. Yeah. And you, you, you may be in a situation right now where you just need to run, right? You, you may need to set up some crazy boundaries, I, I have one in my own life that when people hear it, they go, wait, what? Joel has witnessed this. Uh, I, so in my house, uh, my wife, I, I cannot load an app on any phone I have. Not because you're dumb. It's a choice. Well, it could be. <laughs> but this no, in particular, it definitely this in, this in particular has been a choice. But here's why. Because I know me. Right? And so... Uh, somehow, she magically hides the app store on an iPad or iPhone. And so she, Joel asked me one day to add an app uh, for YouTube on my iPad. I was like, oh, I can't. And he's like, let me see. No, I had, the, I had it. And I was he like, couldn't find the app store. Where's the app store at? <laughs> but here's why. That, that is just, that's closed the door yeah, that's good. for me. Yeah. Right? And people look at me like, well, you're nuts. Well, maybe. But I... That's one. That's just a. It's just a guardrail. And you may need to set up some, some boundaries like back, that in your own personal life. It goes back life. to what we said. You said that, that's that's nuts. No, no. What's crazy is to go back to Egypt. Yeah. What, yeah. yeah. What would be crazy to be go back to Egypt? Which is what we want to do, right? We go. Yeah. Here's another practical thing. You heard of the power of positive thinking? That's a bunch of crap. But there is power in positive community, and I want to talk about that. So I love it when modern science finally catches up with Scripture. It happens so often. You can just see it. You're like, oh, they finally figured this out. Um, so I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to, like, uh, sports science, endurance, athletics. It, I just I read a lot about it. And I was recently reading an article that was talking about four things that top performance, top athletic performers do every day. Uh, daily choices or long-term lifestyles the top athletes in the world consistently do. And here, uh, one of those had to do with the company that you keep. I want to read this, just a few blurbs from it. It says, motivation is contagious. Research has shown that when we see someone else express happiness or sadness, the neural networks associated with those emotions become active in our own brains. The same goes for pain. This is why we cry during sad movies, feel uplifted among happy friends, etc. This empathy can prompt very concrete actions and behaviors. Studies show that if one of your friends becomes obese, you are 57% more likely to also become obese yourself. If one of your friends quits smoking cigarettes, the chances you'll smoke decreases by 36%. These even remain strong in second and third degree connections. Many studies on behavior change and performance focus on the individual, but the makeup of one's social circle has a huge impact on one's own behavior, and the world's greatest performers know this. Or, as Solomon said thousands of years ago in Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Okay? 
Here's the advice. Like, I cannot overestimate the importance of gospel community when it comes to the pursuit of holiness and sexual purity, right? Um, are you surrounding yourself with people who take this stuff seriously? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are serious about guarding their heart, their eyes, their mind, who do things that might seem crazy with their devices or who just take the Bible seriously? Or are you surrounded with people who have a cavalier attitude toward holiness? The people you surround yourself with, like it's science, but before it was science, it was just scripture. They impact you. They affect you. So is community a community that points you to Jesus and to holiness or to, to other things? I got one more. Okay. Chapter 7, verse 35, Paul says. Look at you in chapter 7. I know. I feel. S- the end too. <laughs> hey, we can, we can call it. We we'll made it through. It. We made it through. We're going to count it. Paul's, after he answers all these questions that the, the church has for him about, like, what about this situation? What about this situation? He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That idea of the phrase he uses there, undivided devotion, means to sit before someone like a king. And that's what I'm going to tell you. What, what does it look like in our lives just to have an undivided devotion to the Lord? To, to sit in front of him and gaze on him. Because, you know, that, that's what we're told to do um, earlier in 6, what we've, what we've been talking about. Like, to, to gaze on him, to think on him, to, to in 6, he says, you're, you were bought with a price. What was the price? That's what we, we go back to day after day. That's why the gospel never stops. It's, it's not just a beginning and then we move on. The gospel never ends, our, our pursuit of it, because we're gazing on, on the fact that Jesus took his life. He paid our price for our sins on that cross. And so we, we gaze on him. I think that's, that's the practical thing I would throw out. And that's a good place to stop. Can I just say, though, if anyone in here is struggling or um, caught in sin, feeling a temptation, toward, just need help, um, they can email you. Yeah. I would tell you my email address, but you would forget it. Just You can email Vic. He can get with it's us. Vic at Watkinsville. It's the easiest thing in the world. Like We, we want to be here yeah. as a resource for you guys. So... Um, yeah. Let me, let me pray for us. Father, we, we do um, sit before you tonight um, a- acknowledging that um, you created us and we are not our own. You purchased us, Father, through the death of your son, Jesus, for uh, your glory and our good. And, and as we read through Corinthians tonight, we, we, know, we know this to be true, that we are free and that we matter. Our bodies matter. Our minds matter. We matter because of the price that was paid. 
And so, God, we want to be a people that glorify you with our bodies. And I, I pray for brothers and sisters in the room that may be caught in some, some deep bondage of sexual sin. God, that you would deliver them. You would give them the courage to flee. You'd give them the courage to make um, bold, what the culture would call crazy decisions to fight it. Um, and that you would help us all resist the temptation to want to go back to Egypt. Because we are free. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys. Have a great week.